Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And the title of my message is, When a Pastor Loses Heart. Because this conference exists to serve pastors, each of us who have the privilege to address you, choose our messages carefully. We choose our messages carefully. We choose our passages to preach from you carefully. We choose what we think would especially serve you as pastors. And this passage and message is is my choice with the approval of Mark Dever. Oh, captain, my captain. <laughs> and I hope, I hope this passage and this message serves you. Actually, at present, I, I don't know that there's a letter I'd rather preach from to pastors than 2 Corinthians. I'm not sure there's a more important letter for pastors to study than 2 Corinthians. This letter was written by the quintessential pastor. And Murray Harris, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, writes the following. Traditionally, Paul's two letters to Timothy and one to Titus are called the pastorals. But 2 Corinthians has a strong claim to be recognized as the pastoral epistle par excellence because it contains not pure but applied pastoralia. Paul, the pastor, has unconsciously penned a profound autobiography. This is the most personal of his letters. We get to know him personally and pastorally in a unique way through this profound letter. Therefore, let's consider a portion of this profound letter and discover afresh its relevance for us in pastoral ministry. Chapter 4, I begin reading in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry By the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let Light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. 
always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe, and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Father, I do pray. I pray for each and every one present. I pray that you would draw near to each one, draw near to each one through the preaching of your word. Bless, comfort, strengthen, encourage, challenge, surprise, amaze us all with your grace. Lord, I know you are eager to do this because you are gracious and you are wildly generous. And Lord, I pray that you would also smile on these men as they stand here and address all assembled throughout this conference. Have mercy in all these ways, I pray and I thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. There is much for the pastor in 2 Corinthians, but in chapter 4 there is something unique for the pastor that is particularly personal. For in chapter 4 we are informed about certain temptations that are common to pastors and one temptation in particular. The temptation to lose heart. To lose heart while serving in pastoral ministry. We encounter this phrase at the outset of chapter 4 in verse 1 and it appears again in verse 16. Paul was very familiar, very familiar with this temptation to lose heart in the midst of the challenges and difficulties and opposition that he encountered as he proclaimed the gospel, planted churches and cared for churches. His Uh, extensive list of trials and suffering and hardship that appears in chapter 11 of this particular letter concludes with a reference to the daily pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. This, This was a man who was familiar with the temptation to lose heart and no doubt he was familiar with the temptation to lose heart in relation to the Corinthian church in particular given his intense and often painful relationship with them. But 
in this chapter, we aren't just reminded of the temptation to lose heart. Here in this chapter, we encounter Paul's resolve to not lose heart. That resolve actually frames this chapter in verse 1. We do not lose heart. And in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. And these, brothers and sisters, these are remarkable statements in light of all this man suffered in light of all the responsibility this man carried, in light of all the opposition he experienced and endured, these are remarkable statements. Though tempted to lose heart, he resolved by the grace of God not to lose heart. So, what informed that resolve? What informed his resolve? How how can... How can my resolve, how can your resolve be similarly informed and inspired so that we do not lose heart? Because the temptation to lose heart is a common temptation to all pastors. All pastors here are familiar with this temptation to lose heart. What pastor here isn't familiar with this temptation to lose heart? This, this is a predictable temptation for all pastors. This is a, this is a temptation you can predict for pastors on pretty much every Monday. Every Monday we are particularly aware of this temptation to lose heart because no doubt beginning Sunday afternoon, continuing on through Monday, we are evaluating the Sunday service in our Sunday sermon. And that evaluation is normally not a favorable evaluation. And we can be aided in our unfavorable evaluation by well-meaning or not so well-meaning church members who provide us either through conversation or email with their unfavorable assessment of our sermon. And so we are very aware of this temptation to lose heart. By the way, it might help you to know that even the best of them are familiar with this particular temptation. I, I was with one of the best. I was with one of the, in my opinion, finest expositors of our time, one of my favorite expositors. And I was with him a few months ago uh, at, in a conference context prior to him speaking. We were having dinner. I was seeking to learn from him, draw him out, ask him questions. And at one point I said, could you give me three ways I can pray for you? I want to pray in an informed way. Give me three ways I can pray for you. And his third, his third prayer request was this. Pray that I would not bomb so regularly when I preach. His exact words. And I looked up, I was writing down his request, and I said, that, that is ridiculous. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pray that. You, you don't bomb. I, that. And so I demanded from him a, a third request. Well, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Well, he preached that evening, and he preached just, oh, he just preached one of the finest, flawless messages that I or those in attendance had heard. And so when he came down from the platform, I walked over to him and I said, you didn't bomb. But on the way to the parking lot, on the way to the car in the parking lot, he lamented aloud that he had bombed once again. 
I began to encourage him immediately. I began to take him through what I had observed and experienced in terms of his exegesis and illustration and application. And it didn't seem to be resonating in his heart. I said, well, surely, surely prior to getting in the car, you were aware of the attentiveness and the responsiveness of all in the congregation. Surely you were aware of that. Surely, surely you were aware that there was no coughing. That was a cough-free sermon. You talk, you talk about Pentecostal power coming upon you. No one coughed. And it still did not seem to, to, to move him. And so as we drove away, I, I, well, all I had left was names. So I just started calling him names. I just said, you are an idiot. Because um, he was, and that's all I had at that particular point. He was, he was being an idiot. And later on that evening, I reflected as I returned home that this indeed is a temptation. The temptation to lose heart is indeed a common temptation and a temptation common to pastors and a temptation common even to the best of pastors to temporarily lose heart. There's no pastor who's exempt from this temptation. And I can't help but wonder how many present right now feel this temptation or feel the effects of this temptation. You have perhaps in recent months been losing your heart for pastoral ministry. Or you've remained faithful and skillful and even apparently fruitful, but you're no longer joyful. Gradually, imperceptibly, Over a period of time, you have been losing heart. And you find yourself at this conference. And here is what I believe about your attendance and participation at this conference. I believe this conference is a gift from God to you. I believe God intends to care for you at this conference. I pray you sense him drawing near to you even now. If you have been tempted to lose heart, if you would acknowledge you have been losing heart, oh, I believe this conference is a gift from God to address your heart, to strengthen your heart, to transform your perspective and your heart, and to send you back home to wife and children in church discernibly different. I believe this conference is a gift from God to all pastors in attendance. I trust to everyone in attendance. Listen, here's, here's my concern at the outset of the conference. Here's what I'm trying to do at the outset of the conference. I'm trying to prepare you for all that's about to take place. I'm trying to prepare your heart, listen, so that we don't waste this conference. This conference is a gift from God. And I don't want any of us to waste it. So, from the outset, Purpose, purpose to lean in to every message. Listen humbly to each and every message. Listen humbly and not critically to each and every message. Use the time during meals to review what you found particularly 
helpful in each message. Begin any review and evaluation of a message by identifying evidences of grace that were obvious in and through the message. And then communicate with those you're with how you found each message helpful to your soul. Let's, let's, let's lean, let's humbly lean into every message. We listen. We gather as needy men. We have not gathered to impress one another. We have not gathered to simply listen and critique each other. No, we come here as those who are very familiar with this temptation to lose heart. Some of us having lost heart to some degree. We need grace. And grace will be provided in abundance by God through the preaching of His Word. So let's lean into it, filled with expectation, humbly responding to it. And then let's draw others into our lives as well. Don't just lean into the message. Draw others into your life and your heart. If it is not well with your soul, then communicate that to the appropriate individual at the appropriate time. When asked, how goes it with your soul? If it is not well with your soul, Acknowledge that. For some of you, grace, it's just a humble acknowledgement away. But to differing degrees, we, we will all be tempted to walk through this conference presenting a very carefully edited version of ourselves. Well, let us not submit to that impulse. That is arrogance. No, let us instead lean into these messages humbly. And let us draw others into our lives so that we might receive help for our needy souls so that we might not waste this conference. I I look back on my life. I have been to countless conferences. And I know because of my arrogance, there have been times when I've wasted messages, maybe wasted the majority of a conference. I don't want to do that with this conference. I want to be real careful with this conference because it's a gift from God to the souls of needy pastors who are very familiar with this temptation to lose heart in relation to the difficult and challenging ministry of a pastor. So, what does a pastor do when he begins to lose heart for his role and for his task? What does a pastor do? Well, in chapter 4, Paul informs us of his resolve so that we can resolve by the grace of God to not lose heart. So we're just going to contemplate three heart-protecting, heart-strengthening realities for the pastor who is tempted to lose heart. Number one, the call of Christian ministry, verses one through six, the call of Christian ministry. Paul's awareness of his call and the nature and purpose of his call strengthened his heart and protected him from losing heart. He references this call at the outset of this paragraph in verse one with the phrase, having this ministry. And then he describes the nature of this ministry in verse 2, an open statement of the truth. Verse 3, our gospel. Verse 4, the gospel of the glory of Christ. Verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. This ministry is a call to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him Crucified. Paul's ministry was fundamentally one of proclamation, the proclamation of the gospel. 
And Paul had described the nature of this ministry and the glory of this ministry and the superior nature of this ministry in relation to the Old Covenant already in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. It, it, is, it is this ministry that strengthens Paul's heart and resolve to not lose heart. It is, it is this ministry that made all the difference for Paul when he originally arrived in Corinth and experienced opposition to the proclamation of the gospel. At a time when, when he was tempted to lose heart, the Lord revealed himself to Paul one night in a vision and said to him, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And so Paul did not lose heart, but he remained in Corinth so that through his preaching, those whom God had chosen would come to faith. And the Corinthian church was created by this ministry of proclaiming the gospel. And in Corinth, Paul experienced the reality of chapter four, verses four through six. The Corinthians, in effect, became a living illustration of those verses. And it is the glorious nature and effect of this ministry that sustains Paul in ministry. And though his call and ministry was certainly unique, we too have been called to this ministry, this ministry of proclaiming the gospel. We have been called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ where the glory of God is uniquely revealed and displayed. We we have been called to proclaim this gospel to those who appear to have no hope in verse 4, to those who have been blinded by the God of this world. And as, as we proclaim this gospel to those who have been blinded by the God of this world, the same God who dispelled darkness at creation will dispel the darkness of their heart, the darkness of heart in sinners like you and me, and give sight to the blind. And oh, what a sight they will see. They will see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As we proclaim Him, God gives sight to them. As pastors, we can be easily discouraged, easily discouraged. I find myself so easily discouraged. It is pathetic how easily I can be discouraged. Easily discouraged by resistance, easily discouraged by opposition, easily discouraged by hardness of heart, easily discouraged by blindness. Listen, pastoral ministry, pastoral ministry is a sacrificial call. It's attended with unique challenges. We are called to take the gospel to those with hard hearts and blind eyes. And we are called to proclaim and apply this message to those who have been regenerated, given sight, as well, for their hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And of course, that would include our own hearts. So pastoral ministry is about an ongoing confrontation with the God of this world, with blindness, with hardness of heart, with remaining sin. But we do not lose heart because we have this Ministry. We do not lose heart because we have this message, this message that gives 
light. This message that reveals glory. This message that transforms lives. And since we are called to preach this message, we do so with integrity as defined and described in verse 2. And we must resist in this ministry any impulse to tamper with this message. Those who tamper with this message underestimate this message. We must not tamper with this message because we are not innovators. We are proclaimers. And we don't proclaim ourselves, verse 5. We don't preach to draw attention to ourselves. We preach to draw attention to Him. And when one has been captured and captivated by the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who would want to preach about themselves? Why would anybody captivated by this glory want to draw attention to themselves? No, when you've been called to this ministry, you will want to proclaim Him and you will want to please Him and you will live aware that your call to this ministry was purely an expression of the mercy of God. Note how Paul was aware of this in verse 1. He was aware that his call to this ministry was all because of the mercy of God. Verse 1, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Paul, Paul's heart, Paul's resolve to not lose heart was, was informed by this awareness of the mercy of God in his conversion and call to ministry. Paul, man never ceased marveling at the mercy of God revealed in his conversion and his call. Some, some 30 years after his conversion and call, he, he writes to Timothy and says, though formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and insolent opponent, but he says, but I received mercy. The man never got over this. How about you? Have you gotten over it? Have you become acclimated to it? Are you amazed you have been called to this ministry? Amazed. Do you live like Paul with this awareness of the mercy of God in your life. Surely you are. Surely you are aware that your call to this ministry is because of the mercy of God. In, In light of my sinfulness and God's holiness, the only explanation for receiving this call to this ministry to preach the gospel is, is the mercy of God. Because every day, every day, horrible, Sinful stuff takes place in my heart. Every day. I I am not, I am not worthy for this task. I am decidedly unworthy for this task. And yet, and yet, because of God's mercy, I have been, can it be? Yes, it can. I have been entrusted with this gospel, called to preach the gospel and listen because of listen because of the mercy of God when I do preach the gospel God dispels the darkness that captivates 
hearts because of sin and Satan. And God gives sight to the blind. So that when I preach the gospel, sinners see that face. They see that bleeding sacrifice. They hear the cries of Calvary. They perceive His sacrifice as for them. They perceive Him as their sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing substitute. They see Him as the one the Father raised from the dead, satisfied with His perfect life and substitutionary sacrifice. They see the Lamb slain, seated on the throne. Sinners see all that and turn from their sin and trust in the Savior for the forgiveness of sin. And their lives are transformed by this ministry and this message that we have the privilege to proclaim. I love looking at, look look at this. You look at verse 4, it appears hopeless. You look at verse 6, God does what only He can do. And then you realize there's verse 5. And pastor, you're in verse 5. So this apparently hopeless individual experiences this creative act of God through the means of your proclamation of the gospel. Listen, if you keep this in view, you won't lose heart. To keep this ministry in view, you won't lose heart. Well, okay, well, how can, how can I keep this in view? Well, Second Corinthians 4 will help, help you to keep this in view. So keep Second Corinthians 4 in view. I'd also recommend you keep in view your congregation. Too, too easy as pastors to just become uh, preoccupied with the besetting sins in the lives of those we're caring for. And we have a legitimate concern for them and we want to provide them with all manner of wise and biblical counseling. But it's, it's, it's too easy to simply become preoccupied with their besetting sin and to forget their conversion. And to not keep in view that moment when this creative act of God took place and they turned from their sins and trusted in the Savior for the forgiveness of sins. So we must work to keep the conversion of those we are serving in view. God sent someone just two weeks ago to me to help me to keep this in view. It's a friend of mine uh, who just contacted Nora and said, I, I just want to meet with CJ. I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for preaching the gospel to me and serving me. I was glad to meet with him. Over the years, actually, he's been faithful to send me an email on the very day he was converted. And I had the privilege to be preaching while he experienced verse 6. So he just wanted to meet with me and say thanks again. So in the midst of all that was easily preoccupying my time and attention, all the difficulties and challenges related to pastoral ministry, I found myself sitting across from this individual and they just started to describe what they experienced from verse 4 to verse 6. And then with a, a smile that filled the room, he just said, so I just wanted to come and say thank you. Thank you for preaching the gospel. This is the difference it's made in my life. When he left, I went back to work and I had 
fresh heart for the work. And I thought, yeah, that's what this is all about. I gotta, I gotta keep guys like this in view. This is what we have been called to do. And, and brothers, may we just, may we just never lose wonder. May we never lose a sense of wonder that we, you, me, have been called to pastoral ministry. May we, may we never lose a sense of wonder that we've been called to proclaim this Gospel, may we never lose a sense of wonder and marvel at the fruit of the effect of preaching the gospel. So Paul resolves not to lose heart because of the mercy of God. He has been called to this ministry. Second, the second reality that keeps us from losing heart is the context of Christian ministry or the conditions of Christian ministry, verses 7 through 15. And this is too too dense to possibly cover in this time allotment, but let me at least introduce it to you. Paul, listen, Paul, Paul was under no illusions that the context of this ministry, his ministry, would be easy. And, and his resolve to not lose heart was informed and strengthened because he understood the context of pastoral ministry. He understood that the call of the pastor is not only to proclaim, but also to suffer and to serve. This, this ministry, this glorious ministry of proclamation, it takes place in the context, listen, in the context of personal weakness and the harsh realities of a fallen world that is opposed to the gospel. So in verse 7, he references personal weakness. And then he details some of the harsh realities of ministry in a fallen world in verses 8 and 9. Affliction, bewilderment, persecution, being struck down. Listen, this was Paul's ministry experience. These aren't random categories for Paul. He had illustrations from his life for each. They are drawn from his experience and more details he will provide in chapter 11. In a fallen world, this glorious ministry, this glorious ministry of proclaiming the gospel, in a fallen world, it by definition involves trials and suffering and opposition and persecution. Now again, Paul's suffering was unique, but listen, these categories apply to us as well. Oh, aspiring pastor, young pastor, here is what you have to look forward to. Too often, too many in pastoral ministry begin aware of the mercy of God and confident in the gospel, but un prepared for verses 7 through 12. And you need to have this theology, this theology of suffering in place prior to your experience of verses 8 and 9, or else you will be blindsided because this ministry isn't just about proclamation. It also involves suffering. If you're a wise pastor, regardless of age, but in particular if you're a younger pastor, if you're interacting with an older pastor, I'd use these categories. They would inform my interview of an older pastor. I would want to say, please tell me how you have experienced affliction, how you've been bewildered, how you've been persecuted, how you have been struck down. Let these categories inform your study of another individual or someone who is mentoring you. But listen, every pastor... Every pastor is familiar to differing degrees, in differing ways, with these categories. Every pastor is familiar with affliction in some form. Perhaps it is chronic illness. Perhaps it is an economic hardship from the geographic location where you have been called to serve. But every, every pastor is, is, is 
Every pastor is familiar with affliction. What is your affliction? Probably whatever you're thinking about as we wake up, make our way through these categories. Every pastor knows what it's like to be perplexed or bewildered. Godly father of three dies in a car accident. He's 29. You come home from the funeral. There's your next door neighbor. He's an ungodly individual. He's just aging, prospering. And a godly young man just was taken. And you're a pastor. People want to know why. You're bewildered as well. You go to the, you go to the hospital to celebrate the birth of a particular child. Huh. And then that weekend, you do the funeral for that child. So in a matter of days, you go from rejoicing to mourning to facing the family and those gathered. And you're bewildered. You're you're bewildered. You got three kids. Two are converted. One is not. Preached the same gospel. Parented in a similar way. Served them in a similar way. You're bewildered. Oh, I'm so glad Paul was bewildered. I'm so glad Paul was familiar with being perplexed. I'm so glad Paul had an I don't know in his pastoral toolbox. I'm so glad this, this, this verse serves my soul. Persecuted. You familiar with that? Sure you are, to differing degrees. It's more subtle in this country, but it's present. Perhaps an article appears in the local paper misrepresenting you, the church. Perhaps in your school district, the schools ban the use of Churches, churches are banned from using the school facilities. We have persecution. And then perhaps the one we're most familiar with, struck down. Huh. Now it would appear Paul is referring to being stoned in Lystra. But there are many forms in which one can be struck down. There are many different ways you can be struck down. A friend who helped you start the church and has served in the church. A friend from pre-conversion days who was converted at a similar time as you, that friend abruptly leaves the church and slanders you as he goes, and you are struck down. Or a staff member that you have served with for a number of years announces he's leaving and misrepresents you as well. He makes his way for the door. And you are struck down. I think the most common form of being struck down for pastors is depression. (laughs) And even the best are familiar with this temptation. I would encourage you, if you don't already have Lecture to My Students by Charles Spurgeon, I I would encourage... Lectures to My Students should be required reading for all pastors. So if you don't have the book, run. Don't walk. Run to the bookstore 
at the conclusion of this session today and find your way to this book, buy this book, and turn immediately to the minister's fainting fits, where Charles Spurgeon, who was familiar with being struck down, would instruct us as follows. As it is recorded that David, in the heat of battle, waxed faint, so may it be written of all the servants of the Lord, all of them. Fits of depression come over the most of us. Usually, cheerful as we may be, we must at intervals be cast down. And then he just seeks to explore the possible physical reason for this. So physical maladies. He transitions then to mental maladies. This is classic Spurgeon. As to mental maladies, is any man altogether sane? That's just... (laughs) Are we not all a little off the balance? (laughs) It's just brilliant. And then he says... Some minds appear to have a gloomy tinge essential to their very individuality. You know people like that? I do. I don't like spending a whole lot of time with them. (laughs) There's enough gloom in my world (laughs) without interacting extensively with somebody who has a gloomy tinge that seems essential to their very individuality. What Spurgeon is saying is that there are some present who are more apt to being struck down, more vulnerable to being struck down. The lesson of wisdom, he says, is be not dismayed by soul trouble. Count it no strange thing. Listen, count it no strange thing, but a part of ordinary ministerial experience. Should the power of depression be more than ordinary, think not that all is over with your usefulness. Cast not away your confidence, for it has great recompense of reward. Even if the enemy's foot be on your neck, expect to rise and overthrow him. Cast the burden of the present along with the sin of the past and the fear of the future upon the Lord, who forsaketh not his saints. Live by the day, I by the hour. Be content to be nothing, for that is what you are. And when your own emptiness is painfully forced upon your consciousness, chide yourself that you ever dreamed of being full except in the Lord. Set small store by present rewards. Be grateful for earnest by the way, but look for the recompensing joy hereafter. Between this and heaven, he says, there may be rougher weather yet. Oh, no. It's not very helpful. But it is all provided for by our covenant head. Come fair or come foul. The pulpit is our watchtower. It's powerful. And the ministry, our warfare, be it ours, when we cannot see the face of our God, to trust under the shadow of his wings. Spurgeon said, when you cannot trace his hand, you must learn to trust his heart. Listen. You're going to be in pastoral ministry. You're going to encounter all of these experiences. And by the way, you, you most likely will be experiencing the differing degrees all at the same time. It's not like they come in phases. It's not like there's a season of affliction. No. You'll be afflicted, bewildered, persecuted, struck down, all in a weekend. And they can all be happening simultaneously. And listen, these harsh realities, they have a divine design. They're not accidental. They are all purposeful. Every bit of weakness and suffering is an opportunity for God to display His grace and glorify Himself in our lives. 
And that's what we encounter in verse 7. That the surpassing power of his grace belongs to God and not to us. And it's on fullest demonstration in the midst of our weakness and as we encounter these harsh realities. So in the midst of affliction and bewilderment and persecution and being struck down, here's what we discover. We discover that God is wonderfully at work. Oh man, what a happy discovery this is. We discover he's wonderfully at work, and so does our congregation. Our congregation discovers he's wonderfully at work in our lives as well. Listen, your congregation isn't just listening to your sermons and studying your sermons. They are studying your life as well. And if if you never suffered, well, then they wouldn't be able to observe the power of God in your life. They are studying you. They are studying you in particular when you are suffering. And they want to see if the gospel makes a discernible difference in your life. They want to see if you trust God. They want to see if you remain charitable and cheerful. They want to see if you endure and don't lose heart. And though we encounter these harsh realities in verses 8 and 9, actually you want to notice that the accent in these verses is not on the harsh realities. It's, it's, it's not on the harsh realities. Actually, the accent in these verses is on the grace of God. It's on the phrase, but not, but not. We are afflicted in every way, but not. That's the accent, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. The accent in the passage is on the but not. Paul is certainly acknowledging the harsh realities, wants us prepared for the harsh realities, but he's actually celebrating the grace of God that preserves us as we encounter the harsh realities. He is celebrating the grace of God that sustains us in the midst of these harsh realities. And this should bring great strength to our souls. I am afflicted, but I am not crushed. I am perplexed, but I am not driven to despair. I am not forsaken. I am not destroyed. See, ultimately, it's not about Paul's resolve. Ultimately, it's about the power of God. It's about the sustaining grace of God. It wasn't that Paul was unusually strong in his constitution. No, ultimately, it is about the power of the sustaining grace of God. Because left to myself, I would be crushed. Left to myself, I would be despairing. Left to myself, I would be forsaken. Left to myself, I would be destroyed. But not. And every pastor has but not written over his life. And this will serve your wife. Big time. Wives, this will serve you. I mean, there have been times I've been struck down. Carol is doing her best to challenge me and bring a biblical perspective, and I am stubbornly not responding. And she's just learned over the years, make the attempt, and then leave me alone, fully confident that a but-not moment is coming. She did her best to serve me. If I'm not going to be humble and responsive, over to you, Lord. He'll be back. But-not moment will take place at some point. Sometimes it's a matter of minutes, sometimes hours, sometimes days, but but not is going to happen in CJ's life. 
because the grace of God is active in his life. See, what happens when you walk through these afflictions and bewilderments, persecution, and being struck down, you discover there's a treasure in there. There is a treasure in there. And then in verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12, Paul, Paul describes for us the paradox of ministry. Murray, has, Murray Harris says it well, always dying, but never lifeless. I tell you, verses 10 through 12, these verses are not my preference. Mark Twain said, most people are bothered by those passages in Scripture which they cannot understand. But as for me, I have always noticed that the passages in Scripture which trouble me most are those I do understand. I just want you to know, when I read these verses, I find myself troubled by these verses. Because these verses inform me that this ministry not only involves a call to proclaim the gospel, but also involves the sanctifying work of the gospel in our lives as we experience hardship and persecution, trial and suffering. So, verse 12, death is at work in us. Oh my. So death is at work in us. Listen, as some of the dying we experience seems mundane, like weekly sermon preparation. There you are preparing a sermon on Saturday when you want to watch the Masters. Where the weather changes and everybody's outside and everybody seems to be having a blast but you. You're inside. You must study. You die. Wives, you die each and every time you give up your husband for the sake of that sermon preparation for the sake of ministry. When you sacrifice time with him for the sake of the advance of the gospel, death is at work in you. Some of the dying is more significant. It's more pronounced, like accepting a call to ministry in a difficult place or a dangerous place or a less fruitful place or being a support pastor on a pastoral team rather than a lead pastor. This is what the ministry is about. Just all about weak and dependent pastors who are dying to themselves. They're serving and suffering, but check out the result. How sweet is the result in verse 12. Death is at work in us, but life in you. Oh my. Death is at work in us, but life in you. Life in the form of conversion. Life in the form of growth and godliness. Life in the form of the building of the church. Life in the form of the advance of the gospel. Life in the form of the transfer of the gospel to the next generation. Death at work in us. Life in you. If you look behind a genuinely fruitful church, you will find dying pastors. That's the conditions. That's the context. Paul's understanding of the conditions and the purpose of God in and through the conditions and the context strengthened his resolve. And in the midst of those harsh conditions, he became aware of the but not sustaining grace of God in his life. Finally, his heart was strengthened by the hope of Christian ministry. Verses 16 through 18. He does not lose heart because he maintains an eternal perspective. These verses are just stunning. 
It, endurance in ministry it, it is, is rooted in an eternal perspective. Those, those with an eternal perspective don't lose heart. Listen, the absence of an eternal perspective leaves you vulnerable to losing heart. Paul doesn't lose heart because he realizes that the proclamation of the gospel and service and suffering in the cause of the gospel are producing something in him. He identifies it as an eternal weight of glory. And at lunch I said, I wish I, wish I could create team teaching where as I introduce that phrase, I could then say, John Piper, would you come on up now and bring this to a close? Would you just take that phrase, an eternal weight of glory finish off this sermon so that I will be credited with preaching quite the sermon. <laughs> Paul, had, Paul had this eternal perspective. He, he studied the unseen. Gave careful attention to the future. As he studied the unseen and gave careful attention to the future he became aware there was this inner work of renewal taking place that really foreshadowed his future resurrection. Now, that's not all he was aware of. He's also aware that he is wasting away. He says there, though, our outer self is wasting away. And let me just tell you, as we were standing up and age is being identified, all of those 50 and above, that they have become increasingly aware that they are wasting away. Sad thing is, Paul's, Paul's wasting away probably had to do with affliction and being stoned. I'm just, I'm just wasting away. But I, I, I'm wasting away. My friends are wasting away. This is like a segment of our conversation every time we're together. We, we have like this wasting away update every time we're together. At some point... <laughs> We just start relating ways in which we are wasting away. We just, we're just more aware than ever. We are wasting away. Paul was aware of that. He was aware he was wasting away. But here's the difference the eternal perspective makes. Here's the hope it provides as Paul contemplates and compares his present suffering and compares his present suffering with future glory. Here's what he concludes. He concludes there is no comparison. Yep, he's experiencing severe present suffering. He is wasting away as he seeks to advance the gospel. But as he peers into the unseen and as he peers into the future, he concludes there is no comparison. There is no comparing present suffering with future glory. Paul says when you make this comparison, there is no comparison. If you, if you make the comparison of your local quarry to the Grand Canyon, there, there is no comparison. If you compare Big Ten football with SEC football, there is no comparison. I'm so sorry. There is no comparison. Listen, here, here's what I realized in studying this passage. This, this isn't my impulse. This isn't my impulse when making a comparison. This is different than the comparison I normally make when I attempt to help folks. My, my normal comparison is this. Well, you know, your situation could be worse. I mean, I know you have it bad, but let me just tell you about somebody who has it worse. And then I'm hoping that that comparison will be some kind of comfort. Well, that's not how Paul worked. He didn't work with that kind of comparison. And his approach 
And the comparing he did changed everything, changed his perspective. It's just incomprehensible that he could call his suffering light, momentary. I mean, how would you like to spend time with him? I mean, it would just seem to be that no whining would be allowed. (laughs) Really. I mean, you, you have no story that can top his. All of his stories can top yours. I mean, when he says struck down, you see the scars on his body. And when you're talking about being struck down, you say, well, somebody said something very unkind about me. (laughs) It wasn't true, and I was struck down. I was depressed for a few days. See, I just... Well, if what he has experienced is light and momentary, what do you... What what do you got? I mean, if his is light and momentary, what is yours? So he had this perspective. Where did he get it? Well, he says very clearly, as we look. Verse 18, as, as we look. He, he endures the affliction of the present visible world by keeping before him the glories of the unseen world. He becomes aware of this inner renewal taking place and this heart-transforming perspective as he looks. I'm just saying the older you get, the more you need to learn how to do this. We need to learn how to look at the unseen and to look in the future. I still spend way too much of my time looking at the scene, looking in the present. I want to learn how to look more into the unseen and into the future. Because as I do, as you do, we become aware there's an inner renewal. Again, accent on the sovereign sustaining grace of God in our lives. And then you realize that what you're presently experiencing cannot be compared, cannot be compared with the glorious future that God has planned for you. And your resolve is strengthened. You are ready again to preach and to lead and to counsel and to serve and to endure even in the midst of affliction and bewilderment and persecution and being struck down, you have fresh hope. You don't lose heart. Let's pray. Father, for those who arrived aware that they are losing heart, humbly acknowledging their needy heart, I pray that from the outset of this conference to the conclusion of this conference, you would strengthen their heart. I pray, Lord, that they would be freshly encouraged as they realize your sustaining work of grace in their heart. And that all that's taking place in their lives, all of these harsh realities that are before them and that await them are part of your divine design. You are at work. The surpassing glory of the gospel and the grace of God is on display. An eternal weight of glory is being formed. Lord, 
from the outset of this conversation to the conclusion, may we develop this skill of looking into the unseen and into the future so that, that eternal perspective makes its way back to our hearts in the present, has a transforming effect on us. So we return home humbled by a fresh awareness that is the mercy of God that we have been called to this ministry, aware of the conditions and with an eternal perspective that makes all the difference. So we have this privilege to serve you as pastors and proclaim this glorious gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.